Today is Monday, July 11th. Let's get right to it. The House returns tomorrow and will stay in session through Friday. The Senate returns today and will stay in session through Thursday. This week in the House, as I said, they'll come back tomorrow. First vote set for 2 p.m. At that time, the House is scheduled to take up 15 bills under suspension of the rules. On Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, the House is scheduled to consider another seven bills under suspension. In addition, the House is scheduled to consider H.R. 6358, the Active Shooter Alert Act, and H.R. 7900, the National Defense Authorization Act for fiscal year 2023. The House will also take up H.R. 8296, the Women's Health Protection Act of 2022. That's the most radical abortion at any time for any reason bill that the House has ever considered, which, in fact, they already considered. They did it back in September. And they'll also take up H.R. 8297, the Ensuring Access to Abortion Act of 2022, which would protect women who travel outside their home states to obtain an abortion. This week in the Senate, they'll come back to work today with the first vote set for 5.30 p.m. That time, the Senate will proceed to a roll call vote to invoke cloture on the nomination of Ashish S. Vazirani to be Deputy Undersecretary of Defense. Then, based on the Majority Leader's cloture filings, I anticipate the Senate will move to consider the nomination of Stephen M. Dettelbach to be Director of the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives. Michael S. Barr to be a member of the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System for the unexpired term of 14 years from February 1, 2018. And that very same Michael S. Barr to be Vice Chairman of the Supervision, I'm sorry, Vice Chairman for Supervision of the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System for a term of four years. There's also the possibility that the Senate will vote on the nomination of Bernadette M. Meehan to be U.S. Ambassador to the Republic of Chile. Now, things in the Senate may get a little bit confusing this week because there are two Democrat senators who may not be able to come to the floor so easily. Vermont Senator Patrick Leahy broke his hip a few weeks ago and is rehabbing at home. His spokesman says he'll be available to come to the floor if needed. Uh, but he may not be needed because any close vote may be put off until next week or possibly the week thereafter because last night we learned that Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has tested positive for COVID and will be quarantining for the rest of this week. Now to an interesting ruling in Wisconsin. On Friday, by a vote of four to three, the Wisconsin State Supreme Court banned the use of ballot drop boxes and declared that voters could no longer give their completed absentee ballots to other people to return on their behalf, thereby declaring invalid the practice of ballot harvesting. Ballot drop boxes had been used sparingly across the state prior to the 2020 election, but in that election, their use exploded. By the time of the election, there were 528 ballot drop boxes in use throughout the state, despite a state law that says that an absentee ballot must, quote, be mailed by the elector or delivered in person to the municipal clerk issuing the ballot or ballots, end quote. The state Supreme Court ruled that the language means that voters themselves must return their own absentee ballots and cannot use drop boxes, wrote Justice Rebecca Bradley in the majority opinion, quote, the key phrase is in person and it must be assigned its natural meaning. In person denotes bodily presence and the concept of doing something personally. 
Further, says the majority opinion, ballot drop boxes are illegal under Wisconsin statutes, end quote. One other note, in any decision where the majority has one more vote than the minority, it's accurate to say each of the majority votes was the so-called deciding vote. In this particular case, it's apparently generally agreed that the deciding vote was cast by Justice Brian Hagedorn, who won a 2019 race for the state Supreme Court with help from Republicans, but has since sided in a series of cases with the court's three liberals. In this case, he voted with the majority and then released a concurring opinion in which he stated, quote, the people of Wisconsin must remember that judicial decision-making and politics are different under our constitutional order. Our obligation is to follow the law, which may mean the policy result is undesirable or unpopular. Even so, we must follow the law anyway, end quote. Good for him. I happen to disagree with him on his assessment of the ruling. I think it's going to be more popular than he apparently thinks it will be. But on the question of following the law wherever it may lead, he's got it right, and the people of Wisconsin are the beneficiaries. Now, a Border Patrol update. On Friday, the Border Patrol released an internal report revealing that the two agents on horseback who confronted migrant families last fall along the banks of the river in Del Rio, Texas, did not strike migrants with their reins. President Biden, you'll recall, had said the migrants had been what he called strapped and declared at the time that discipline would be meted out shortly thereafter. The Office of Professional Responsibility of U.S. Customs and Border Protection issued a 511-page report saying that after an investigation, it had determined that no migrants were struck or denied their right to seek asylum in the U.S. The report did not include any recommendation for discipline. Now more on the Dobbs ruling fallout. The fallout from the Supreme Court's ruling in the case of Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, which overturned the court's 49-year-old Roe ruling that struck down state prohibitions against abortion, continue to roil American politics. In the wake of the Dobbs ruling, Radical Democrats have been pressuring President Biden to take drastic steps. Given that the draft ruling leaked seven weeks before the court issued the final ruling, there was a feeling on the hard left that the White House had had plenty of time to gain things out and figure out a so-called proper response that would somehow protect access to abortions despite the court's ruling. Of course, the court's ruling did nothing by itself to remove access to abortion. All the court did was strike down two bad rulings and throw the question back to the states and to the small-d democratic process. Nevertheless, Biden felt the pressure and issued a statement saying he believed that passing a federal law establishing a right to abortion was so important that it was worth a carve-out from the filibuster if necessary. Of course, this is his second proposed carve-out from the filibuster. You'll recall he already called for a filibuster carve-out on the issue of voting rights. This is the problem with carve-outs. Once you establish the principle that something is valuable enough to be worth a carve-out, it simply becomes a bidding game of which issue is more important than the next. And, of course, the great irony here, which seems to have gone unnoticed by those demanding a carve-out from the filibuster so they can pass a federal law establishing a right to abortion, is that they find themselves in the situation they do now precisely because of an earlier Democratic carve-out to the filibuster. 
you'll recall that it used to require 60 votes to break a filibuster on a judicial nominee's confirmation. Then in 2013, Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid employed the nuclear option to lower the threshold to a simple majority for lower court judicial nominees. Senate Republican Leader Mitch McConnell warned Democrats at the time, and I quote, saying, you'll regret this and you may regret this a lot sooner than you think. Four short years later, when there was a Republican in the White House and McConnell had become the majority leader, he nuked the remaining filibuster threshold for Supreme Court justices and lowered the confirmation requirement for Supreme Court justices to a simple majority. And that's how President Trump was able to nominate and McConnell was able to push through three conservatives who ended up voting to overturn the Roe ruling. That all came about because of a carve out to the filibuster and the one law you cannot repeal, the law of unintended consequences. Meanwhile, the marshal of the Supreme Court is in a bind and has asked the governors of Maryland and Virginia for help. She wants them both to enforce state and local laws against picketing private residences to bring to an end the raucous protests going on outside the homes of several of the Supreme Court justices who voted to, stroke, to strike down the Roe ruling. You may recall about a month ago, I reported to you that the governors of Virginia and Maryland had jointly written a letter to Attorney General Merrick Garland asking him to please enforce a federal law prohibiting picketing or parading outside the home of a judge or a justice while a case was pending. So here's the thing. That federal law was written specifically to protect judges and justices from being influenced while a case was pending. Once the case is decided, apparently thought the people who wrote that law, they would no longer need protection. And the people raising a ruckus outside their homes are no longer trying to influence their votes on the case. They're now engaged in demonstrating their anger at the votes that were cast. And because they can no longer be said to be trying to influence the outcome of the case, that federal law no longer applies to them. And the more general state and local laws against raising a ruckus in a neighborhood are the only laws that could be used against the protesters. But the state and local officials in the given jurisdictions don't want to enforce those laws because of First Amendment concerns. They think the laws on their state's books may be considered unconstitutional. It's a mess. Stay tuned. Now, another try at a reconciliation bill. This has been simmering on the back burner for several months now. I've been keeping an eye on it, watching it percolate, and it's now serious enough and far enough along that it's time to bring you up to speed on it. You'll remember last fall, the Democrats were desperate to use their five vote majority in the House and their no vote majority in the Senate to pass a reconciliation bill they called Build Back Better. It was a multi-trillion dollar boondoggle that would have caused even more inflation and debt than we're dealing with now. And it was shot down when West Virginia Democrat Senator Joe Manchin declared he would not support it. That denied Senate Democrats the 50 votes they needed to bring in the vice president to break a tie. So the whole enterprise blew up. The obvious answer for Democrats at the time and since was to simply ask Manchin what he would support. And though it took him a while to get around to it, Chuck Schumer finally did get around to doing just that. And Manchin basically said, let's just do a couple of things. 
we'll raise taxes on rich people and we'll do that prescription drug thing y'all keep talking about and we'll do some energy and climate stuff but not as much as y'all wanted that original bill and oh maybe if we can we'll find a way to throw some money at those obamacare subsidies that are about to expire right before the right before the election so our own voters don't get screwed any more than we're already screwing them and we'll bring this in right at a trillion bucks and we'll use half of that to pay for the new stuff we want to do and we'll use half of that to go to debt retirement and they call it build back mansion and so schumer had his staff talk to mansion staff and that's been going on for a couple of months now and they're far enough along that they've taken the prescription drug pricing scheme and arranged a meeting with the senate parliamentarian to make their pitch and make sure she'll agree that their plan falls inside the rules for a reconciliation bill. They haven't gotten there yet on the climate and energy provisions. They are still under discussion. You'll recall that in the original Build Back Better bill, there was a plan to spend $555 billion on energy and climate related stuff. Manchin has apparently said that's too much and he aims to spend about $300 billion. So, what happened that made me decide the time was right to bring you up to speed on this? Two things. First, the decision by Leader Schumer to go to the Senate parliamentarian. You don't do that unless you're getting ready to go to the floor. Second, Senate Republican Leader McConnell's assessment that the Democrats are far enough along this one-sided partisan exercise that he opposes, that he decided to issue a threat against further action on this bill, which we're about to discuss as I segue right into China competitiveness bill. Meanwhile, there's been another negotiation going on over another massive and different spending bill. This one has been called at various times the Endless Frontiers Bill or USICA for United States Innovation and Competition Act or the America Creates Opportunities for Manufacturing Preeminence in Technology and Economic Strength. For you acronym lovers, that's the America Competes Act, or sometimes simply the China Competitiveness Bill. Both houses passed a version of this bill. The House version, not surprisingly, is heavy on stuff Democrats like, lots of spending and regulation. The Senate version, which got 19 votes from Republicans, is a bit more moderate, but still features a lot of spending. $52 billion in the form of incentives for semiconductor chip manufacturers and the like, and about $100 billion for the National Science Foundation. There are 107 conferees from the House and Senate meeting to negotiate a compromise. Their conference began on May 12th. According to Republicans, there are still more than a thousand individual items of disagreement between the two versions of the bill. Democrats say there are fewer than that, but acknowledge there's still a lot of work to be done. Now, here's where it gets interesting. Last week, worried that Schumer and Manchin appeared to be making significant progress toward a partisan reconciliation bill in that other negotiation we just discussed, McConnell issued a warning. He tweeted, and I quote, let me be perfectly clear. There will be no bipartisan USICA as long as Democrats are pursuing a partisan reconciliation bill, end quote. McConnell was trying to force Democrats to choose. They could either have their one-sided partisan reconciliation bill or they could have a partisan, I'm sorry, a bipartisan USICA bill, but they could not have both. Schumer's being advised that one way out of the dilemma would be to simply have Speaker Pelosi take the Senate-passed version of the bill and put it on the floor of the House for an up or down vote. 
The advantage is that presumably they could get it passed in the House and then it would be sent directly to the president for his signature. The downside for House Democrats is that they'd have to accept the language of the Senate bill, which is not at all what they passed in the House already. In fact, it's so different, it may well not pass the House of Representatives. On Wednesday, McConnell issued a pencils down order to Senate Republican staff who were involved in the negotiations over the Chinese competitiveness bill. So he sent a clear signal to the Democrats, choose one or the other. Stay tuned. And now finally, January 6th committee action. On Tuesday, June 28th, that is two weeks ago tomorrow, former Trump White House aide Cassidy Hutchinson testified before the January 6th committee. Over the course of several hours, she testified to several things she did not personally witness, but was told about, some of which were later challenged. And she testified about some things she did personally witness, but which were also later contradicted by other witnesses. Her most explosive testimony came in the form of a secondhand story. She said she was told by then White House Deputy Chief of Staff Tony Ornato that after President Trump's speech at the White House ellipse, when he was told in the presidential SUV that he would not be taken to the Capitol despite his clear wish that he be taken there, President Trump exploded in anger and from the back seat grabbed at the steering wheel. Then, when he was blocked by Secret Service agent Robert Engel, the head of Trump's security detail, Trump lunged for Engel's throat. Later that day, Secret Service officials said Engel and the driver of the presidential SUV were prepared to testify under oath that neither man was assaulted by Trump and that he did not reach for the steering wheel of the vehicle. During her testimony, Hutchinson declared that during the course of the riot at the Capitol, she had written a note on the personalized stationery of then White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. The following day, a spokesman for former White House lawyer Eric Hirschman said she was wrong. Hirschman had written the note and more. He had previously told the committee he had written the note. During her testimony, Hutchinson declared that Trump advisor and lawyer Rudy Giuliani had met at the White House to strategize with Justice Department lawyer Jeffrey Clark. The following day, it was revealed that Giuliani had never met at the White House or anywhere else with Jeffrey Clark. And perhaps Hutchinson had mistaken Jeffrey Clark for Justin Clark, the deputy campaign manager of the presidential reelection campaign. What's worse is that the Washington Post was told of this potential confusion six weeks before Hutchinson testified. On Friday, July 8th, that is last Friday, White House counsel Pat Cipollone testified behind closed doors for eight hours. According to CNN, the committee failed to ask him to confirm some of Hutchinson's testimony regarding things she said he said regarding January 6th. Specifically, she testified that he had said that if Trump traveled to Capitol Hill on January 6th, then they would, quote, get charged with every crime imaginable, unquote. But the committee did not ask him if he told her that. According to a source who talked to CNN, if he had been asked about the alleged exchange, he would not have confirmed that particular statement. California Democrat Representative Zoe Lofgren, a member of the committee, was asked on CNN on Friday night if Cipollone had confirmed testimony from Hutchinson. She replied, not contradicting is not the same as confirming. 
Two more items of interest. Over the weekend, President Trump sent a letter to former White House advisor Steve Bannon, in which Trump told Bannon he was lifting his claim of executive privilege over the exchanges the two of them had had. Bannon followed up by informing the committee he would be happy to testify and would prefer to do it in public. Second, the next committee hearing will take place on Tuesday, that is tomorrow. The focus will be on outside groups like the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys and what, if any, interaction and coordination they had with members of the White House staff in preparation for the events of January 6th. 